Good morning, church. Mm, mercy. Not much, Steve. Glad to see you here, man. <clears throat> Good to see you. So uh, here we are, Matthew chapter 5 today. We're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be preaching all through it, uh, kind of really piecing it out. Today we're going to be talking about salt and light and what that looks like. I was thinking about this as I was prepping and I couldn't find it. Somewhere from about 30 years ago when I went off to college, there is a bright yellow t-shirt from our Campbellsville University, then Campbellsville College, Baptist Student Union that had a, a salt shaker and a flashlight on our shirts. And we were to be salt and light and we had all this verses. And I was like, man, if I could find that shirt and pray it might, maybe could fit. Maybe I could wear it today when I preach this. And God blessed me by not having to humiliate me by putting it on in a mirror because I couldn't find the shirt. It's somewhere in the house, but I'm not sure where. But I thought about that and I thought just the, uh, the joy of fellowshipping with with other believers who are also living out salt and light came into my mind as we thought about that as well. And it is just a neat thing. Well, let's go ahead and look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16 today. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up. If not, it's on the screen and you can follow along there. Let's hear the word of the Lord. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for this time we have. We thank you for this, this day that you've, you've given to us. We thank you for this time we have to, to, to gather and worship and to worship you through the hearing and through the response to your word. I pray, Lord, that as we go through this, you'd put me aside, that, that you let this message be your message to us, to, to speak to our hearts. Father, as, as Chris and I prep these sermons, often we talk to one another and we, and we say that we'll wind up preaching to ourselves before we can preach to the congregation, and I pray that that be true today as well, that this just be something that resonates in me that, that I can then allow others to resonate with as well. Father, continue to, to draw us closer to you, continue to convict us where we need to, to rid ourselves of the things that are keeping us from you. Teach us to be salt and light for your sake, for your glory, and for your kingdom. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So when I look at this verse, or these verses, Matthew 5, 13 through 16, I'm, I'm really kind of interested in these because I'm not a big life verse kind of guy. Like I'm not the... I'm not the guy that this is my life first, and this means like I'm, I'm not that person. I don't necessarily, Lee and I have discussions about throw pillows all the time. She teases me with them. They're like this thing that she taunts me. I don't know why we have to have so many pillows and why they have to have things stitched on them. I just need the one for my bed. That's all I need. I don't need six on my sofa, right? I, but, but she teases me about it. So I'm not a big life first guy. I'm not a big stitch it on a pillow kind of guy. And I, and jokingly, when people ask me about my personal life verse, I often give them Leviticus 13, verses 40 and 41, and then they make them look it up, because 
They'll figure it out. Right? If, if there were to be a life first, that would be the one I would throw around at him, right? If a man's hair falls out of his head, he's bald, he's clean. And if a man's hair falls out from his forehead, he has baldness on the forehead, and he is clean. That would be, that would be for me. That works, right? Right? But here I am. I am a firm believer that all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is good for teaching. All Scripture is good for learning. All Scripture is good for correction. All Scripture is good for our admonishment. That's why I'm not big into just a single life verse, because all Scripture is good for our life, right? But I also understand that, that there are certain times in a believer's life that some Scripture may speak to them in a much more powerful way than others. There were times in my life when the book of James, the entire book of James, really spoke to my heart. There have been times when reading through Paul's letter to the Ephesians that there have been things that have jumped out at me from that. There have been times when, when Old Testament scriptures have really spoken to me. But when I look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, I see here what you could call a purpose statement for Christians. What's our purpose? Right? Sometimes, and I, and I don't want to think like church in a corporate manner here, but you know, companies will have a vision statement. They'll have a mission statement. They'll have a, a purpose statement, what they do. I, we have that in the Word of God. That is our, our vision, our purpose, and, our, and, and, our, and our, our, our well-being. This is what we do. But when I look at this, I think of that purpose behind it. This bit of Scripture is this great reminder to us that we are called to be. This is who we are, that when we are followers of Jesus Christ, it says, you are these things. We are to be salt and we are to be light. And we need reminded of this every day, each and every time before we step out of our doors. Like I said, I'm not, I'm not a big guy for putting scripture up all around my house and, and having it embroidered on pillows, but, but I would definitely consider buying vinyl clings to stick on my front door or my back door as I'm getting ready to head out for the day, reminding me to be salt and light unto this world. Because I kind of need that. John Stott once said that, that the greatest hindrance to the advance of the gospel worldwide is a failure of the lives of God's people. They see where we don't step right. We're not living as salt. We're not living as light. And they go, why? Why would it make sense? Mahatma Gandhi is credited as saying this, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike Christ. Live like Jesus did, and the world will listen. Hmm. That's what this passage is really calling us to. Jesus himself is calling us to that, to live like Christ so that the world will listen. See, this, this section of, of salt and light here flows wonderfully right out of the Beatitudes. As, as we are changed by the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives, and as we take on and exhibit the character of the Beatitudes, that's what's, what's in there making us be able to be salt and light. Right? It's what exhibits all of that stuff. It's, it's what we're doing. As followers of Christ, we're, we are the only taste of God and the only authentic light the world will ever see. Jesus 
is here, he's pointing out that, that we live in this dark and decaying world. And it needs some preser- preser- preservatives in the salt. I'm get it spit out here in a second. And it needs light reflected in that darkness. We are to be the salt of the earth to a decaying world. We are to bring light into a world filled with nothing but darkness. And, and we are to do it right now during the time that God has given us here on this earth. It's not a, well, I, maybe next Tuesday I can, I can be salt, and then the Thursday after that I can be light. No, he's calling it to, to us to do it now. We need to be just what he's calling. I think sometimes we forget that this, this passage here, um, Matthew 5 through 7, all of it, chapter 5 of Matthew, all the way through the end of chapter 7 of Matthew, that this is all one sermon of Jesus' that's recorded, right? That, that a lot of times when we, we read these scriptures, we read these chunks, we, we forget to take them within the context of everything else that's being preached. When we read verses 13 through 16, we need to read them within the context of verses 10, 11, and 12. And the beginning of that, right? And verses 13 and 16, we're called to be witnesses to the world, right? You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. In the same way, let your light shine before others. This is a global call, right? But we need to remember that where it's taking place, that, that, that we're the light of the world and we're, we're, we're the salt of the earth, we're called to be witnesses to the world and, and as witnesses of these things and the things of God as we're, we're out there proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, we should expect some persecution. Taking a stand for Jesus, taking a stand for Jesus' teachings, taking a stand for the word of God, taking a stand for his righteousness will not always be applauded. A story was shared this, this morning about a family who is, who is cutting off grandparents because the grandparents want to share Jesus with the grandkids. I'm, I'm, I'm both heartbroken and angry when I hear that. But church, we shouldn't be surprised. My prayer for that little grandkid or the grandkids involved, I don't know how many there are, is that one of these days when they're old enough, they're going to reach out and say, Mama, Papa, Grammy, Grampy, whatever they call them, why is it you didn't get to come around very often? And then the gospel's shared and hearts are opened. May God use this tough situation for the, His glory and for the betterment of them. Blessed are those when you are revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets who were before you. May these grandparents rejoice and be glad that maybe there's going to be an opportunity to share the gospel with those grandkids. May we pray that direction on their behalf. See, we're told to be rejoicing and to be glad when that persecution arises in us. That we're going to be reviled like the prophets who were before us. Now this... This makes you kind of ask, though, man, is it, is it worth standing up for Jesus? Is it worth all of this headache when all you want to do is snuggle a grandkid, snuggle a niece or a nephew, see kids that you love know Christ, see family members that you, you love? Is it worth standing firm in your convictions 
about Christ and his word. Church, if you don't answer, yes, you're missing it. Verse 10, blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is an encouragement to us. And I'm not trying to step on Chris's sermon from last week, but I want us to understand what it's going to cost us when we go out to be salt and light. Right? That, that this is an encouragement to us, to, a reminder that we're not citizens of this earth. I, I don't care what my driver's license says. I don't care what my passport says. Those are just proofs of residency. If I'm a follower of Christ, I am a citizen of the kingdom of heaven who happens to be lucky enough to reside in Indiana in the United States at the time I do. That's really it. This is a kingdom-mindedness. It's a kingdom-focusedness, right? That we, we Focusness, is that a word? It is now. It's a kingdom focus that we need to have. This is an encouragement that, that we're citizens of something greater. We're citizens of a, of a kingdom of God, a kingdom that has no end. And we are called to be salt and light within this world that we're residents of because that world is dark and decaying. We know that salt purifies and preserves. And we know that a light illuminates and ends darkness. And we are called to do that. One of the, one of the many reasons that Chris and I preach through whole books of Scripture or, or large sections of Scripture the way we do is so that we can see the Word of God in its full context. right? We often see parts of the Sermon on the Mount kind of preached out of context of the whole sermon. If, if you were to look at just the Beatitudes and somebody were to preach just the Beatitudes by themselves without looking any further, going nowhere past verses 10, 11, and 12, it would look like our Christ life or our life in Jesus Christ is kind of a passive one. We sit around and we're poor in spirit, so we're blessed. We mourn, so we're blessed. We're meek, so we're blessed. Yeah. It's not what's happening here. Jesus immediately follows up everything with an action statement and a call to action here. Right? This is, this is not what it is. It, it's not a passive life. Our citizenship in, king, in the kingdom of heaven is not a passive citizenship. When we read verses 13 through 16, Jesus is calling his followers to be active. He boldly declares to his disciples, and as he boldly declares it to those disciples who were there on that mountainside with him at that time, he's also boldly declaring it to us, his disciples who are following him now. You are the salt of the earth. This is active. It's an emphatic you. Right? This is a you and no one else kind of you. This isn't you only, not your neighbor, not your mama, not your spouse, not your papa, nobody else, you. You are the salt of the earth. Jesus is calling us to be salt in a decaying world. And the beautiful thing here is it's also present tense. A little, little grammar lesson, you know, we've got past tense, present tense, future tense. This isn't past tense, you were the salt of the earth. Nope. It's not future tense. You will be the salt of the earth. Nope. You are. It means it's happening now. Right now, while we're sitting here 
listening to this sermon. You are the salt of the earth. This is important because it means that you have a task to do now as a follower of Christ. And we know that salt has had many purposes over, over its history of a, of a, as, an, as an elemental thing that we use, right? Salt purifies things. You put salt in a wound to kind of clean out the wound. Stings like the dickens, but it works, right? I, I got a little ulcer inside of my mouth right now where I nicked myself with a toothbrush somehow. And, and it's got a little cut, and it's all weird. And so I know I'm going to pack it with salt later this afternoon. It's going to hurt like the dickens, but it'll be cleared up by the morning. Right? It's going to preserve that little spot. It's going to clean it out, purify it. Right? It adds flavor to things. And the first thing you do sometimes, and especially depending upon if you know who cooked it, you grab the salt and pepper shaker and you put a little more salt than you do pepper typically. It adds flavor to things. Used to heal wounds. It's, it's used to create thirst. Uh, we had, had Animals that wouldn't necessarily always take to the water when they were needed to take to the water. Give them a couple salt tablets. They'll take to the water. They'll get what they need. Right? As Christ followers, we have the ability through the Holy Spirit indwelling us to do all those things too. We have the ability through the Spirit working in our lives to help purify things. We have the, the ability to help preserve things. We have the ability to add flavor to people's lives. We have the ability to help heal their wounds through the Spirit indwelling us. We have the ability to create thirst for righteousness in those who know us. Only through the Spirit indwelling us. But, but he's doing that so that we can be salt and light. And within the context of Jesus' sermon, it, it seems the primary ideas here he's talking about, though, are, are purifying and preserving. That, that we, as, as, as gospel-living people, Right, as, as gospel indwells us, as we live through it, is whether we're here in Martinsville or whether we're out in the rest of the world, wherever we are, we're called to bear faithful witness of the life-changing truth of Jesus Christ in our lives. We're not called to just talk the talk, but we're called here to walk the walk. Because if our words and our actions don't line up, right, we're not only being a, a type of salt that doesn't do any purifying or preserving, it loses its power. Our walks must match our talks because we're supposed to be pure of heart, as it says back in verse 8. If we are pure of heart, then we will be pure in life as well. Some of you may know the, the story of Eric Lytle. I think I'm pronouncing his name. He was a Scottish Olympian. But before he was a Scottish Olympian, he was, he was a missionary in China. He was born in China to Scottish parents who were missionaries in China. And, and he lived such a really like it there are lots of missionary biographies out there that i would recommend any you can grab on eric lydell is one that i would recommend we know him probably most because he was the main character from the movie chariots of fire back in the 80s if you were a 7 to 12 year old boy or so in the 80s you did a lot of dun 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 slow motion running in your backyard with that song running through your head that was how we kind of knew that's how we knew him but i think we forget about him being a missionary and a servant of god who desired that above all else he purposefully missed some events in the 1924 paris olympics so that he could go to worship on a sunday rather than compete and he adjusted his schedule in such to do that. When he completed, and he did get a gold and a bronze in the 24 Paris games. When he completed those games, 
He returned back to China to continue doing missionary work. During World War II, when the Japanese invaded northern China, what we call Man- or they called the Manchuria area then, um, Eric was still there during the invasion. He was taken into a Japanese internment camp uh, in China. And the thing that the people outside around him, the journals and the letters that the others said about Eric was that he was the source of encouragement to the others in the camp. He was known to get up in the dormitories before everybody else and read scripture and pray by candlelight so that he wouldn't wake the others. David Mitchell, who was another fellow missionary of his and and worked closely with him, said that Lytle's faithful and cheerful support made the difference for many in the camp. Otherwise, they would not have survived. Lydell himself was so committed to Christ, so committed completely to Christ. His one real desire was to know God more deeply and to make God more fully known. And he lived it out. He was salt when people needed some salt. He was light when people needed some light. He didn't lose his purity of faith. He was salt of the earth people to people who needed salt of the earth. He did that. Second part of verse 13 says, But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. How can it be restored? Salt's only good if it's salty. We don't think of salt having an expiration date. That's kind of not how we think about salt anymore. I got a, I got a can of Morton salt that we've probably had since we got married. Right? <laughs> it's, it's a 12 or 13-year-old can. The lid's all falling apart, but it still pours. It's still good. It's, it's still salty. right? Um, but in ancient times, salt wasn't as pure as salt is now. It could get contaminated. It, it wasn't, we didn't have this pure salt mining process or this pure salt gathering process that we do now. In the time of Christ, salt was very susceptible to becoming contaminated. It was susceptible to becoming impure. Losing its taste would imply that the salt has lost its usefulness and it couldn't be restored. I don't typically look at the message as a Bible. It's kind of one of those eh, bad paraphrases. I will say that. But it says verse 13 in an interesting way. It says, let me tell you why you were here. This is Jesus, this is the word saying, you're here to be the salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? If you've lost your saltiness, you'll end up in the garbage. It's a way for us to think about it today. Again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend studying through the message. I wouldn't recommend digging that there. But if you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? They won't. They simply won't. If the people of God, who are the salt of the earth, lose their taste, people will not know the goodness of God. If people are not learning the goodness of God from those who claim to belong to God... They have lost their usefulness to God. Those who claim God and are not letting others taste of it, they've lost their usefulness to Him. And if you are not useful to God, you'll be thrown out, trampled under people's feet, as the Scripture says. 
Luke chapter 14, verses 34 and 35 say this, Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? It is no use for either the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you've lost your purity of faith, if, you've, if, if we've lost out on that, then we've lost our, our, our usefulness. Where we start to lose out on that purity of faith is compromising in little things, right? Because little compromises eventually will lead to compromises on bigger things in our faith. Seeking worldly pursuits above seeking Christ means that the attractiveness and the beauty that is a life rooted in Christ becomes kind of lost and, and muddied up and mired. Seeking Christ above all else, maintaining commitments and convictions when it looks foolish to the world to do so will have people take notice. This gives credence to your claim of Christ in your life. It has the power to open the ears of those around you so that they may hear the truth of the gospel. If you live your life with humility and conviction to Christ that's unwavering, people will notice. It adds flavor to life. There's a unique quality to you that people will notice. That's useful to the kingdom of God. As the salt of the earth were to spread out through, through the earth, seasoning this world with all the characteristics of the Beatitudes, taking what, what Jesus has already told us in verses 1 through 12 and, and spreading that out. We are to be poor in spirit knowing that we cannot do it on our own that we need God in our lives. We are to mourn over how we need God and how others need God as well. We are to be meek and we are to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We are to be merciful and pure in heart. We are called to be peacemakers and to know that we will be persecuted for serving our Lord. And all of this makes us useful to God for His sake, for His kingdom. Don't lose your usefulness. And Jesus has called us to be salt in a decaying world, right? And he's also called us to be light in a dark world. Going back to verse 4, we see, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Do you mourn the dark and lost world? We've talked about how, how mourning is an action. It's something we can do. And, and in mourning a dark and lost world, the action we can take is to bring them light while we mourn for their darkness and their lostness. We should do that. We need to mourn for the dark and lost world. Amy Carmichael, who is a missionary, said this about hearing the lostness that she'd, of the world as she'd listened to a sermon from another missionary. And, and she just wrote down in a journal, says, does it not stir our hearts to go forth and to help them? Does it not make us long to leave our luxury, our exceeding light, and go to them that sit in darkness? She was moved and convicted by Taylor Hudson as he preached this sermon to her in her little church about the darkness of the world. You are the light of the world, Jesus says in verse 14. This is a deep and wonderful statement from our Lord. The idea of light overpowering darkness is all over the Old Testament. Light in the Old Testament represents revelation, it represents instruction, it represents 
hope, joy. And hope represents righteousness. It represents salvation and the presence of God himself. Isaiah describes the Messiah as a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth in Isaiah chapter 49. Jesus himself says in John 8, I am the light of the world. And here in Matthew 5.14, he applies that same concept to his disciples and in turn, those who follow him today. Those who follow Jesus reflect his great light in a dark and lost world. And in reflecting him, we also point others to him. He describes it as like a city on a hill here, right? It's like a lighthouse pointing the right direction. That's an amazing privilege. It's an amazing privilege to be able to point people to the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But it's also a great responsibility. This this great light we reflect is, is a missionary call on our lives. It isn't something that we can just simply flick on and off, right? Oop, gonna be a light. Oh, I don't feel like being the light today. It's not how it works. We're always that light reflecting Jesus' light out to others. The light of Christ is always on, and if we are truly his, we are always reflecting his light. And he gives two examples of a powerful light in a dark place. And the first is this idea of a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Right? And I, and I thought about this. I'm like, we don't, we don't think, there's not a lot of dark places left in the United States. We don't think about a city on a hill and, and it, and this example being much. Like, we understand the concept of it, right? Put the light up high. It can shine out everywhere. That's why light, um, lighthouses on, on the East Coast were so tall, right? Three and 400 feet up. We, we understand that idea, but we don't, we don't see it. It doesn't seem as practical. There's, there's not as many dark places in the United States as there used to be. We've got all this light pollution around us, and we don't see it like that anymore. But I thought about the power of light in a dark place and I thought about a trip I took in college to Mammoth Cave. I took this, this trip to Mammoth Cave one weekend while I was in college. We took a guided tour with one of the park rangers. And we came to this room in the cave. It was a pretty good sized room, almost the size of the sanctuary inside a Mammoth Cave. We're about a half mile or so down, maybe, and out. I don't know. We were, we were deep. And there's all these little old school lights little light bulbs every so often you know every eight or ten feet but we get into this room with this park ranger and she literally reaches over to the wall and flicks the switch off and it is dark like no light dark we're so far into the cave uh, we're, we're, we're 35 40 minutes into our little guided tour we're so far into the cave, there is no sunlight coming in from the opening. We're so deep, there's no sunlight penetrating from the ground. You could literally accidentally bump your, your hand on your face trying to find your fingers. It is dark. So here we are, literally unable to see our face, our hands in front of our face. And we stayed in this darkness. She continued talking for a good 90 seconds or so, talking about rods and cones and all those fun things you talk about when you talk about being dark and how people see, and if there's no light, can you, you, know, can you see anything? And as she's doing that, our eyes are, are, are trying to adjust and the pupils are dilating, trying to figure out what's going on. And she strikes a single match and lights a single candle. 
and the whole room lit up. In that striking of that match, in that one moment, that match strike, that candlelight, if you look directly at it, it was so intense it almost hurt. That's how dark we were. That's the power that light can have in a dark place. One candle. And we're talking the same kind of little candles you have for little candlelight vigils, right? We're not much bigger than a birthday candle candle. But it lit up that whole room. That's the kind of power it is. This is the light we are called to be as followers of Christ. A bright and intense light that cannot be mistaken. You can't miss out on that light. This is why we, we have to guard ourselves against sin in our own lives, right? That that light on the city, uh, on the hill, that light from that candle in that super dark cave, there are lights there that provide safety, that provide security. There are lights that, that guide people where they need to go. This kind of light gives direction for those who need it and are seeking it out. We are called as God's people to give direction to those who are lost in a dark world. Jesus also tells us to be like a lamp on a stand. Verse 15, nor do, people put, uh, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. He gives this illustration of, of a lamp lit and then hidden under a basket. And, and this is almost a, an argument of ridiculousness, right? Almost an, an argument of absurdity. It's a ridiculous scenario. This isn't how lights should work, right? We don't hide lights. The only time I've ever thought about a hidden light is when I was a kid and I wanted to read comic books under the cover. That was neither good for me nor anyone else in the house to hide my light, right? It wasn't a good thing to do that. The purpose of a lamp is to give light. The purpose of every follower of Christ is to reflect his light. We are called to let our light, our Christ's light, shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to God the Father. We cannot do what Jesus is calling us to do if we hide our lights. Jesus reiterates the idea of spreading out by reminding his disciples that a lamp is put on a stand to give light to the whole house. This is why in modern construction we, we wire in ceiling lights. Right? If you have an older house, we have an older house, we don't have ceiling lights in the living room. They weren't wired in. That wasn't how it worked. You, put a, you have a plug and you flip the switch and it turns the plug on. And you're to put a tall lamp on a big lampstand on that plug to light up the house instead of putting it in the ceiling. But that's the idea there still, is it was up high and the light would shine down. And everyone would be able to see from that. That light will then spread out from the ceiling or spread out from that high post and it fills the room and it illuminates the entire space. And we are to do the same. We're called to be the light of the world. This is a missionary call. It's a missionary call to us just as much as the Great Commission is a missionary call to us. 
We are to spread out among the nations, shining the light of Christ to all that we encounter. An anonymous author once wrote down that the reason some folks don't believe in missions is that the brand of religion they have isn't worth propagating. Man, let that not be said about the people of Calvary Heights Baptist Church. Let that not be said about those of us who are gathered here to worship. Let us reflect the light of our Lord and King Jesus to everyone. Let our lives reflect the one true God, creator of the universe. Let our faith be so deep and our walks with Christ be so close to him that we cannot help but to shine his light into a dark and lost world. Let us be light to those who need light. Danny Aiken, who is president of the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and, and honestly, of, of some of the, the learned men I have met, is one of the most practical <laughs> of the men I have met in his learning. He asks some questions here about being a light in a dark place. And he asks them this way. He says, does fear of man keep you from shining brightly for Jesus among the nations? Does pride keep you from shining brightly for Jesus among the nations? Does sin keep you from shining brightly for Jesus among the nations? Does comfort keep you from shining brightly for Jesus among the nations? Does peer pressure keep you from shining brightly for Jesus among the nations? Do parental, and I put in parentheses, or family expectations keep you from shining brightly for Jesus among the nations? Do your own ambitions and agenda keep you from shining brightly for Jesus among the nations? These are all things that we're tempted with all the time. Fear of man, our own pride, sin that we don't necessarily want to uncover because we know if we uncover it, then others folks may have to know about it when we go to repent. Comfort. I'm not going to lie. I got a nice big chair. I got an air-conditioned house. I got internet TV. I got lots of comforts. Peer pressure. Are you sure you really want to do that? Those family expectations, personal agendas and ambitions, all of these things can keep us from shining our light from Jesus. I'm going to ask one more. One more question, though. Does your lack of relationship with Jesus keep you from shining your light brightly among the nations? So maybe, maybe you've been in church your whole life. Maybe you've been trying to live by the rules, but keep finding it. You just simply can't. You can't do it on your own. Well, when you find out that you can't do it on your own, then you become poor in spirit and we can work with you. And Jesus can work in your hearts. You can continue to find out that you cannot do it on your own. You will just continue to see that. You need Jesus to do it. You simply need Jesus to do this way. See, we're all sinful. We're all rebellious people. And we've rebelled against God and we've rebelled against his truth. And because we have rebelled against God and his truth, we deserve death and eternal separation from his good favor. But God in his love for the people he created designed a way for a rebel to become a saint. Jesus, who is God in human flesh, came and lived among us. And in his life, 
here on earth, he fulfilled all of the law of God that we cannot do. He lived a perfectly sinless life. And he has done for us what we could never do. He rescues us. He takes our sin, he takes our shame, and he places them on the cross with his body. He willingly, and understand this, willingly pays the price for our sin. And he does so by sacrificing himself for our sake. Jesus was then raised from the dead to provide the only way for us to be rescued and restored and placed into a right relationship with God. We must admit our sinfulness and stop trusting in ourselves, stop trusting in our power. We must ask Jesus to forgive us and rescue us. And when we do this, Jesus brings a new life into our lives. He brings a new aspect of it. He changes us. And he begins to work of making us new creatures. God, through Jesus, renews all aspects of our lives. Only through Jesus can we be salt and light in this world. And if you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus, I encourage you to do so. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, praise God. He's starting to, he's making you new. Praise him for that. You are now salt and light through Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage you to think about this quote from, from Ian Keith Falconer. As he said this, he said, I have one candle of life to burn. And I would rather burn it out in a land filled with darkness than in a land flooded with light. Follower of Christ, we know that this world around us is a dark place. Are you taking your light to the dark places you know? Are you hiding it among other lights? What's keeping you from being salt and light to those who need it? That's our purpose, to be salt and light. As we close out today and we we have our, our time of invitation, time of call to action, I want you to ask yourself those questions, right? Is it fear? Is it pride? Is it sin? Is it comfort? Is it peer pressure? Is it family expectations? Is it my own ambitions and my agenda that's keeping me from shining brightly for Jesus? What is keeping me from being a salt and light to those who need it? Ask God to reveal that to you today. Ask him to then pull that from you so that you may better reflect our Lord and Savior. Pray with me. Father, I thank you so much for this time you've given to us. Thank you for your word. I thank you for calling us to something higher than just a passive life here on earth that you have called us to being salt and light I pray Lord that as we as individuals ask ourselves those deep questions about how we can be salt and light how we can ask ourselves what's keeping us from shining brightly that you would point out what needs to be done what is keeping us from doing that for your sake and for your glory Father I pray that we then as a church as a body of believers corporately pray these things and corporately seek out what's keeping us from shining brightly amongst our community what's keeping us from being a city on a hill that guides people to you 
Father, as we enter into this time of, of uh, invitation, enter into this time of call to action, I pray, Lord, that, that as we sing, we not just sing, but we pray. And we seek you to move in our lives, to change us, to convict us, to make us salt and light for your sake and for your kingdom's growth. And it's in Jesus' name I pray.